lot of new books that I think you will like, but there is one that you really should have, in my opinion. Uh, the title of the book is very simple. English Grammar. Yes, English Grammar. 470 pages of English Grammar. It's the best English Grammar book on the market. For me, it's the best English Grammar book in the world. The author... Claudia Martinez is a veteran volunteer and a technical expert in our editorial department. And she has followed the spirit and the rigorous clarity that I have personally emphasized in the Vaughn Method for more than 40 years. This book, English Grammar, is the definitive guide to how we speak and how we construct our language today. As always, it's designed for Spanish speakers, hispanohablantes. In the book, we explain how and why. But we explain it in Spanish first, and then we give you many examples in English. We show you the structures, and often we compare them to the equivalent structures in Spanish. At the same time, we warn you, os advertimos, of many of the typical mistakes, sometimes important mistakes, that Spanish speakers often make. English Grammar, you can buy it in bookshops, large and small, in department stores, on Amazon, in Baugantienda online, and on many other platforms. This book is for you. It's for your children, and it's for your grandchildren. This book will last for a hundred years. There's no better Christmas or birthday present. English Grammar. Western Civilization, from Mesopotamia to Silicon Valley. I'm your host. My name is Guy Williams. On this program, this program being a series of programs on the British Empire, and on this program, we're going to start to talk about China and British engagement with China, the, the impact on China, what China calls its century of humiliation. You know, something that uh, is something that is part of its national identity now. Um, it, it is trying to uh, recover from that humiliation. And in this, you can hear all kinds of um, tones of resentment and perhaps um, a taste for revenge, whereas there are quite a number of historians who are willing to say that um, uh, things during the 19th century were not so bad. And previous centuries had not been so good. And one of the, one of the interesting questions here is how 
China, although it, it tried to, um, to regenerate, there was an official policy under the Qing, um, self-strengthening, but it was largely unsuccessful. Now, you compare that to the end of the Tokugawa shogunate in Japan, right? More than 250 years of complete isolation and how in just a generation, uh, J- Japan had been utterly transformed. Uh, Japan well on the way to being an industrial power. Japan at this point regarding themselves as a Western power. And, um, this is, this is called the Meiji Restoration. Uh, we will explain why, why nothing comparable happened in China and nothing comparable could have happened really in China. But, when we do talk about the Western impact on, on both Japan and China, then um, you got to go immediately to the Jesuits. The Jesuits arrived early and had a profound impact. And especially in China, they were very, very well appreciated. Uh, they introduced concepts of European science, mathematics, astronomy, and, and, and they changed um, some of the visual arts. They, they painted Western-style portraits of important people and this created a school this this completely changed chinese aesthetics and of course the uh, it was all mutual the uh, chinese intellectuals and the jesuits uh, respected each other and got along very very well uh, they were they were respected uh, in addition for, you know, some of the practical things that they introduced in terms of um, logarithms, um, uh, precision for, for example, being able to predict an eclipse. Perhaps the the most famous of all was Matteo Ricci. This was in the late 1500s, right? The um, 16th century. He was a mathematician and he was very good at languages. He absorbed, uh, well, he, he mastered the Chinese language and Chinese culture so that he was able to converse with practically everyone on, on practically any subject, right? Uh, poetry, uh, philosophy, um, as, as one of their own, right? As, as an equal. In addition to which, um, he was largely responsible for many of the translations and many of uh, m- much of Europe's understanding of ancient Chinese culture so that uh, the West was able to learn from China just as China was able to learn from the West. And from that time, uh, you know, people like Voltaire, people like uh, Leibniz, um, they were fascinated by the uh, Chinese belief system by the I Ching, right, Taoism, which uh, technically is supposed to be pronounced Taoism. It's written with a T or written with a D. And of course, Confucianism. And uh, th- this is what the uh, <laughs> the Jesuits were all about, you know, uh, the intellectual discourse at, at the very highest levels. Now, uh, compared to that, you've got uh, the Dominicans and the Franciscans, uh, mendicant orders from the Middle Ages, right? Uh, the, the Jesuits are different. The Jesuits are dealing with 
uh, later concepts and heresies, as they would have called it. Lutherism, um, Calvinism, deism, right? The idea that uh, God really doesn't have a personality. It's more like um, natural law. Whereas, of course, the Dominicans and Franciscans, being medieval orders, are much more concerned traditionally with medieval heresies. And then, of course, because the Dominicans were put in charge of the Inquisition, uh, often considered to be the bad guys, and that's what you get in, for example, the novel or the movie The Name of the Rose by Umberto Eco, where the good guys are the Franciscans and the bad guys are the Dominicans. The Franciscans are motivated by love of learning and a genuine curiosity, and the Dominicans are inflexible, rigid, uh, and generally hate life, at least in that book. However, it's curious to see that, for example, in the uh, in the Iberian Peninsula, although it were it was the D Dominicans that were in charge of the of the Spanish Inquisition. It was the Franciscans that systematically destroyed uh, Jewish communities, right? The, the Juderias. And you would have somebody like uh, Vicente Ferrer going from place to place, um, inciting the local population to kill their neighbors. And, and this is something from which the uh, uh, Sepharad, right, uh, the um, Jewish presence, the Jewish culture in Spain never recovered. So that by the time um, Isabel of Castile um, expelled the Jews, their their culture and their their community was was actually a fragment of what it had been, uh, a shadow of what it had been before these pogroms organized by the Franciscans. Meanwhile, in the uh, in the New World. When these religious orders were imposing Christian belief on the the old religion, the traditional religion in places like Peru or or Mexico, it was obvious to everyone that that this this had absolutely nothing to do with with the with the traditional heresies. So that, that this really wasn't a question of evangelization as much as it was of indoctrination. But it was a, a, a question of how to handle things like uh, syncretism. So that, um, well, for example, in Mexico, you get a place like uh, Nuestra Señora de Guadalupe, where you have very clear uh, reminiscences of pre-Christian beliefs and practices. Is it is it a question of calling that um, anathema, right? A anathema. Is it a question of uh, eliminating that? Or do you just kind of uh, treat it in a natural way, just like in um, uh, standard Christianity? There are all kinds of combinations of uh, previous Greco-Roman beliefs. And yes, there were a, a variety of, of of ways to treat this, although the um, the Franciscans were generally much stricter and the Dominicans uh, much more relaxed when they saw that... Uh, the people in the uh, in the new world right the the natives uh when when they saw that they were trying to understand the new religion 
through the old religion. But what about in the case of China? Well, uh, there was a controversy in the 18th century, and it was it was strong. It was important. Uh, this involved ancestor worship, the adoration of one's ancestors, which, of course, everybody understands. And oh, uh, w- the Romans did it. The Romans would uh, the Romans would put the death mask of their ancestors on the wall with with genuine reverence and quite often in good families in rome you, you know when there was a funeral uh, you would have members of the family put on those masks and impersonate the ancestor in question so everybody understood what the chinese were trying to do but the question is is this licit is this heretical or not and uh, I don't know why I'm 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 just kidding. Uh, this is uh, something that happened to me recently, and just an anecdote. And un inciso, as you say in Spanish, an aside or a digression. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I was uh, doing a tour of Madrid. It was uh, Madrid de la Inquisición, and uh, the the guide was very knowledgeable and uh the it, it was very good very worthwhile very well done the um right the, the, uh, where, the where the prisoners were sent in madrid uh, that uh, today is part of a restaurant right the the individual cells of the inquisition in a place very close to plaza santo domingo naturally uh, because the dominicans were in charge in any case uh, the the number of people on the tour was actually small. Uh, it was myself and a family of five from El Salvador, right? And uh, uh, during the course of the uh, the visit, I was wondering, you know, how much how much these people were understanding. It, it was their first time in Madrid, and well, finally, after after the tour had finished, um, one of them said, "Una pregunta." Usted ha utilizado la palabra herejía muchas veces. ¿Qué significa? And uh, I began to think uh, wh- where to begin. It was a very, I don't know, it was a very, a very strange experience, to, to say the least. Now, in this case, uh, the Chinese heresy, uh, divine rights, or the Chinese rights, rights in the case of ritos, no, derechos, ritos, um, R-I-T-E-S. Uh, it went directly to Rome because the different Catholic groups there in China disagreed so strongly with each other. The Jesuits believed that this was not heresy, and the Dominicans and Franciscans believed that it most definitely was incompatible with Christianity. Now, from the very beginning, uh, Ricci, uh, Matteo Ricci, who know more, who knew more more about the Chinese than than they knew about themselves, right? Uh, that than really anyone has before or since. Um, Ricci had long ago come to the conclusion that ancestor worship and Confucian rites are social 
and do not constitute a religious practice, making them perfectly compatible with Christianity. And when this controversy began, the emperor, the Chinese emperor, decided to expel all of the missionaries who were not going to accept what Ritchie had determined. Finally, it was Pope Benedict the Fourteenth, who, by by decree, prohibited any further discussion on the question. Uh, finally, much later, it was um, Pope John the Twenty Third who agreed with Ritchie, and so that that put an end to the matter. However, in the meantime, the Ming d- Dynasty um, fell. To, uh, to foreigners, foreigners from the north, the Manchu, and these people really didn't care about scholarly things. Uh, the, the Manchu cared about power, and uh, knowledge was no longer respected. So, yes, uh, in the end, the, uh, the Jesuits as well were, were persecuted, but by the Manchu, not by the Ming. Now, let me advance a little bit in time, to the year 1793, the end of the 18th century. We are now in the Qing dynasty. And yes, these are foreigners. And uh, they have uh, dominated the the Han. Han, H-A-N. This is the uh, majority uh, ethnic group in China, representing something like 90% of the uh, Chinese population. And that they have imposed certain things as a sign of subservience. Uh, for one thing, men have to wear the um, the typical clothing of the Manchu rather than their own traditional clothing. Um, another thing is that they have to shave their heads and in the back grow a little colita, a, a cue. Right, we use the French word for for tail, cola. So uh, they they have a little cue in the back, and all men were supposed to do this as a sign of subservience to the foreign invaders. In any case, uh, you get the uh, the British Empire in its second phase. The British Empire has lost the North American colonies. They still have part of Canada, but they don't know what to do with it. They're getting lots and lots of money from uh, sugar in the New World. And very soon, uh, they will be getting lots and lots of cotton. And that's going to make a big difference to the economy. You have a scientific revolution. You have the beginnings of the Industrial Revolution. And it's more or less time for um, the second big phase of the empire, expansion of the empire into India, into East Asia. Uh, They try to go to Japan. Japan is closed. Japan doesn't want foreigners. Japan has the uh, policy of um, Sakoku, which means closed country. There was going to be a... um, Okay, the, uh, the Dutch had been allowed to trade with Japan from a little island close to the city of Nagasaki. And that had been going on for centuries. When the British sent a ship there at a time when they were angry with the Dutch, uh, the, the Japanese responded. But the, 
uh, one British frigate, right? Just, just this tiny little British ship. Um, and the entire coastal defense of Nagasaki could not defend against this small British ship. So that, <laughs> well, the situation was ready for the, uh, a generation later, you're going to have an American come in and force Japan to open up. Oh, but there were plenty of people in Japan who understood the importance of opening up. What what they did is they took out a little a little locomotive, right? A little um, model locomotive, very, very small. And they built it up with its little tracks, and uh, they allowed people to ride on this miniature locomotive. And this locomotive did more than all of the guns on all of those ships uh, in order to, to persuade the Japanese that they were missing something, that they needed modernization. But, of course, this was going to happen in the middle of the 19th century. I'm still talking about the end of the 18th century, when Japan is in its own little bottle called um, El, El Reino Anacoreta, the Hermit Kingdom, right? The Ermita Anacoreta Hermit. Today, if you read the newspaper and you hear a reference to the Hermit Kingdom, they are talking about North Korea. But back in the 18th or 19th century, uh, they would be talking about Japan. So, as I say, 1793, there is an embassy to China. It's going to be very important to deal with China. China is the source of tea. Everybody in Britain drinks tea, increasing amounts of tea. China will accept silver in exchange for tea, but they don't accept anything else. Uh, for years and years, China has been trading with Spain through the Philippines. Uh, the Philippines um, administered from Mexico City with um, many of the soldiers there uh, coming from from Mexico, curiously, many of the um, uh, many of the Spanish soldiers stationed in the Philippines, stationed como uh, destinado, right? Uh, many of the uh, Spanish soldiers stationed in the Philippines are actually uh, indigenous Americans or or um, or mestizos, but you can imagine with the. Um, those galeones and uh, the tornaviaje and so forth, um, the trip to the Philippines and back to Acapulco or Nayarit on the Pacific coast of Mexico, a lot of that trade is in American silver. And so uh, the Chinese economy had been gradually monetarized and had grown very, very strong with this influx of silver from the Americas. People don't generally appreciate this. You know, when they talk about um, uh, talk about the history, they're talking about the extraction of silver from the Americas. And they say, yes, there was the Quinta Real, 20%, that went to the Spanish crown. But much of the rest of it stayed in the New World. In fact... Uh, some of the rest of it went to Asia and was largely responsible for the dynamism of the Chinese economy at this time. Just like, uh, well, as I was saying before, the, the, uh, the Jesuits who had been there, 
they contend with um, leaving things as they are. They do, they don't want to change the situation. Um, they they respect tradition. Uh, later on, you're going to have in the 19th century, you're going to have Protestant missionaries, largely from England or uh, the United States, who want to change everything, and who, in fact, are very much, very much like the communists in the 20th century. Because they believe that tradition is the problem. They want to um, end the past and, and uh, start over again. Just like, uh, just like Henry Ford said, right, in the United States, Henry Ford, whose dream was to revolutionize the concept of space and time in the United States. And he was largely successful in this. And one of his most famous sayings is, history is Bunk. Como la, la historia es una chuminada. Well, that was, again, um, very much part of the 19th and, and 20th century. Uh, the Protestant missionaries, exactly like the communists under Chairman Mao. But, of course, that's, that's going to be in the future. Uh, meanwhile, 1793, George McCartney sent to the Qing court to try and find a way out of this dilemma. How to get tea in exchange for something that Britain can offer. Britain does not want to keep paying silver. There isn't that much silver. The appetite for tea is insatiable, and uh, there isn't that much silver in the world that could pay for the kind of, the quantities of tea that the British Empire is prepared to consume. And McCartney comes with a box of toys, but I have to I have to take a break now. I'll be back in just a couple of minutes. For teens. ¿Y de qué es se eso? trata eso? Es un programa intenso, intensivo, intensivo de inglés que dura una semana aquí en Madrid en un colegio mayor y son clases, clases y actividades muy chulas. Mm, mm. Año tras año. <risa> Hay niños que repiten, eh, chicos, chavales, vienen cansados, agotados. Ahora que notan el empujón que se le da al inglés, ¿eh? de verdad. Y lo más importante es que vienen con ganas de seguir. Aprendiendo, motivados, y eso es lo más importante. Una pregunta que se hará la gente que nos está escuchando, por ejemplo, que nos está escuchando fuera de Madrid. Uh -huh. ¿Algún día se hará esto de los VIP en otras zonas? ¿En otras zonas de España? Lo dejamos ahí, que puede ser. Sí. Todo llega, todo, ¿Todo llega. llegará. Eh, Viene hay... gente de toda España, ¿eh? Vienen participantes sí, también es de toda verdad, España. Verdad. Pero bueno, hay gente que no quiere moverse mucho de su zona, sí. y bueno, teniendo más oportunidades de... De hacerlo más cerca, más cerca bueno, de su eh, eh, delegación. Desplazarse, sí. ¿Hay un, un sitio donde pueden informarse? ¿Una web? Eh, pues lo mejor es llamarnos. Está, ah, mejor es, es llamar siempre, sí, siempre. Lo mejor es llamarnos. No pueden llamar para tratar lo que queráis. Sobre todo si preguntáis por los campamentos, que es el 911335832. Sí. Ahora dilo tú. 9, un, lo mejor es llamarnos. Ok, un número. <risa> a ver, 911-133-5832. Y ahí ya les damos información de primera mano. 
Nos quedan poquitas plazas, ¿eh? siempre lo decimos, no es mentira, es que como lo vamos dejando todo para el último momento, pues luego pasa lo que pasa. Puedes llamarnos al 911335832 y ahí nuestros maravillosos compañeros eh, van a informarte de todo lo relacionado con los campamentos. Nunca me cansaré de decir el teléfono. ¿Queréis decirlo vosotros? La última oportunidad. Vale, 91. Eh, 1-3-3-5-8-3-2 Hasta luego Vaughn Radio is proud to participate with the U.S. Embassy Madrid in Aula the largest educational fair in the land Stop by their stand for live shows, interesting interviews, and info on how you can discover all the amazing educational opportunities that await in the USA. As American blues legend B.B. King once said, the beautiful thing about learning is that no one can take it from you. We'll see you at Aula 2022 at IFEMA Madrid from March 2nd through the 6th. It's all happening at the U.S. Embassy Stand, 12B10. Write it down, 12B10. Don't miss this exciting educational event. Si te acabas de licenciar, no entres en el mercado laboral ni te plantees un máster hasta no resolver del todo. La cuestión del inglés. Resuelve el tema ahora, mientras eres joven y tienes tiempo. Después, es casi imposible. Y recuerda, para los reclutadores vale más un probado dominio del inglés que una docena de másters. Resuélvelo ya. Llámanos. 911335833. 911335833. Recuerda hacer tu prueba de nivel sin compromiso. Llámanos. 911335833. Y ahora financiate el 100% del máster. Consulta condiciones en grupobaugan.com. Aquí llega Lorena Martínez con la última pregunta del examen. Vaya, parece que le ha caído el pass perfect. Lorena lleva toda la temporada entrenando el pass perfect, pero nunca ha sido su punto fuerte. ¡Wow! Eso es Lorena. Vamos, vamos. Fil de gap, Lorena. ¡Wow! Increíble. Ha sacado todas, todas. ¡Qué barbaridad! Lorena Martínez, señoras y señores, qué crack. El examen es de 10. Consigue que tus hijos sean unos auténticos cracks del inglés. Con los cursos del Club Junior no solo mejorarán sus notas, sino que hablarán inglés de verdad y serán capaces de comunicarse. Y por si eso fuera poco, lo pasan genial en clase. Club Junior son las clases para niños de 4 a 17 años en grupos muy reducidos y 100% método Baugan. Infórmate ya en el 911335832, 911335832 o en grupobaugan.com. Mi hermano Raúl se está preparando para ser piloto. Lleva 500 horas con el simulador de vuelo y mañana es su primer vuelo real. Con 500 horas de simulador estará súper preparado, ¿no crees? ¿Quieres subir con él mañana en su primer vuelo? Y por otra parte, mi novio Tomás también se está formando como piloto. Pero solo tiene 5 horas de simulador, no 500 como mi hermano Raúl. Sin embargo, ya ha llevado un aparato arriba 5 veces y lo ha aterrizado con éxito. Si no, ya no sería mi novio, ¿verdad? No tiene 500 horas de formación como mi hermano, solo 10 entre simulador y vuelo real, y mañana llevará el aparato arriba por sexta vez. Si tuvieras que subir con uno de los dos, 
¿con quién subirías? Para nosotros, al menos psicológicamente, una hora de vuelo real equivale a 100 horas de simulador. Subiríamos seguramente con mi novio Tomás, a pesar de sus pocas horas de formación. Para hacerse con un total dominio del inglés, la cosa es exactamente igual. Una hora en Bone Town, superando la ansiedad y los apuros de comunicación, equivale a 100 horas de clases de inglés. Nunca vas a hablar un inglés perfecto, ni lo hablo yo. Tengo mis momentos elocuentes y mis momentos menos elocuentes en mi propia lengua materna, que es el inglés. Así que repito, nunca vas a hablar un inglés perfecto. Ahora bien, si quieres tener un perfecto dominio de los entornos de comunicación en mi idioma, algo muy diferente, vete a Bowentown. Allí, entre angloparlantes de los más variopintos, avanzarás mil kilómetros en confianza, convicción y aplomo. Dominarás los entornos de comunicación a pesar de un dominio aparentemente imperfecto del inglés. is Western Civilization, from Mesopotamia to Silicon Valley. I'm your host, my name is Guy Williams, and on the first part of the program, I was talking about China and some of the history of the West and Western impact on China. And I arrived in the year 1793 to the beginning of what the Chinese are going to call the century of humiliation. And you have poor George McCartney uh, as the ambassador to the Qing court, talking to the emperor. And he has brought with him all of the latest scientific instruments and examples of industrial processes and innovations and demonstrations that the world has changed. Uh, the world is changing quickly. That China can innovate and, and adapt and have direct access to state of the art, right? Uh, tecnología puntera, state of the art, state of the art technology. Now, <laughs> I mentioned, uh, I mentioned on the, uh, uh, the first part of the program that, um, that the Americans were much more clever. You know, 50 years later, 50 years later, they go into Tokyo. Bay, Yokohama, I think, and, and, um, and there they, they assemble a locomotive, a train with a train track and a, a functioning steam engine. It's, it's a miniature. And, um, they allow people to ride on the train. Like uh, you have probably seen for, for children in amusement parks. And uh, this was public and notorious. I everybody was talking about it. E everybody wanted to do it, uh, wanted to participate, or at least wanted to witness something like this. And it was both popular and 
fun. Which made Commodore Perry into something other than a conqueror. Uh, in addition to which the, um, the Americans, uh, they, they came with this idea that, uh, that Europe is your enemy. We are your friends. And we will not do to Japan what England has done to China in the Opium War. But, as I say, all of this is in the future. It was much better done. In the case of McCartney, uh, these toys did not convince the emperor. And, uh, and, and were not shown to people who might have made a difference, right? It was the emperor's eyes alone. It was the emperor's decision alone. And he was totally unconvinced. Uh, in addition to which, oh, back, back in England, uh, the press, was not going to leave this alone. Uh, traditionally, you go to the Chinese emperor and you make this kind of obeisance, right? You, you go down on your knee and then you touch your forehead, like frente, you touch your forehead to the ground like three times, something like that. And this in English is called kowtow. I don't know what it is in China. I know that to is the, um, to is head in Chinese. So that, that's probably where it comes from. But, but it's kowtow. Uh, we use it today. Any kind of criticism, you know, if they want an act of submission, if they want me to surrender, if they want me to humiliate myself in front of them, I will not kowtow. I'm not the kind of person who kowtows to anybody. But what about McCartney? Uh, now, back in London, the, the press had heard about this and, you know, they were speculating. Is he going to kowtow? Is a representative of His Majesty the King going to kowtow in front of this foreign potentate? Which meant that there was a lot of diplomatic maneuvering to guarantee that um, George McCartney would never be in the situation to kowtow to the emperor. Now, if this had been done diplomatically, they could have come to a relaxed solution that is mutually satisfactory, some kind of discreet bowing of heads or something like that. But uh, because the British press had become almost hysterical with the question of kowtowing, which is why the word is still with us 230 years later, it was, it was all done in a very... In a sort of ugly way, right? Um, th there was never going to be a good outcome to this diplomatic mission. And uh, the Chinese responded with a letter. Uh, traditionally, uh, at that time, their diplomatic correspondence was in Latin for obvious reasons. And uh, part of the letter, the, the most important part of the letter says, and I, I quote, right, uh, cito, our celestial emperor... I'm sorry, our celestial empire possesses all things in prolific abundance and lacks no product within its borders. There is, therefore, no need to import the manufactures of outside barbarians in exchange for things we produce ourselves. Now, you have to remember that, uh, at least to the Qing, uh, who, who were Manchus, they were foreign conquerors, uh, there, there, there really did not exist the concept of equality between sovereigns. There were only 
relations of superiority and subordination. In Europe, of course, the idea took hold that uh, China was a, a closed country and a retrograde country, that China was turning its back on the present and the future, so that all of this earlier admiration for Chinese superiority, after all, what paper and printing and the compass and gunpowder, all of these things that come from China, silk from China, any notion of Chinese cultural superiority or, or um, anything to, to respect about Chinese culture disappeared as a result of the McCartney embassy. So that by the time of the Napoleon Wars, uh, you had a vision of China very similar to the vision they had of the Ottoman Empire, which was clearly failing, con contracting, or in the eyes of some, uh, rotten, podrido, no, rotten and, and ready to fall from the tree. But of course, you know, there are other explanations. China had been busy trying to expand in Central Asia. The, the, the people expanding in Central Asia at this time were the Russians. They were taking over vast amounts of territory in a very quick time. Uh, they, they really never imagined that they were going to get such a huge extent of land so quickly. They, they thought it was going to take them much longer to, to expand. And so Russia very quickly uh, became a major player in Central Asia. And uh, many of the traditional kingdoms they're pushing on places like Persia or Afghanistan. The Chinese were also very busy trying to extend their power into Central Asia. And they had had all sorts of percances, no setbacks and difficulty with this. It perhaps would have been seen as a sign of weakness in the West, in Central Asia, if China had made these concessions to uh, to the British. And of course, you know, the Chinese aren't stupid. They, they, uh, they knew that um, McCartney would have asked for more, that, that eventually uh, everything he wanted, if he had received it, if they had complied with all of his requests, that still wouldn't have been enough. And that sooner or later, the British and the Chinese were going to be enemies. No consideration, however, was given to uh, attacking them directly, right? The, the British did not use force. They did not contemplate the use of force because China was too strong. But the, the negative, the refusal on the part of the Chinese made something like the Opium War um, inevitable. By the year 1800, right, 1800, um, the world's largest cities were Beijing, London, and Guangzhou. You can imagine how formidable that was. Also, uh, you know, by the time the um, Opium War actually began in the 1840s, um, Queen... Victoria recently on the throne. This was a, a low point for British colonialism. Um, Britain decided that it couldn't assert its claims to the west coast of North America because they had made slavery illegal and compensated the owners for their slaves. There had been a blockade of 
slave trade. The British Navy was there on the African coast trying to intercept ships with uh, with slaves on them, slave traffickers. But that was both very expensive and um, the fatality rate among those ships, right, was really high. There were uh, many, many people died on those ships. So the, the, the British were not as interested in Africa. Uh, at this point, they were conceding a, a great deal of autonomy, home rule, to Canada. Now, until that time, everything had been done with what was called the Canton system. Um, Canton, today called Guangzhou, the uh, city there on the Pearl River, in the southern part of China. And trade in Chinese goods, silk, porcelain, and tea were all centralized, all localized in Canton, all in exchange for European silver. But there was another thing that the Chinese liked, another thing that they wanted, uh, opium. Now, opium existed in China. Opium was appreciated in China. It was popular there, though illegal. You could find it everywhere, um, imported from, you know, uh, places like Myanmar, uh, Burma, grown in southern areas like Guangxi, which uh, I mentioned Guangxi on an earlier program. There was uh, the uh, land there didn't really have copper, so the, the coins used in their money were made of iron and so were very heavy and difficult to transport. And so uh, Guangxi, uh, one of the first places in China to to adopt paper money. There is a, actually there's a restaurant in uh, central Madrid, um, serving food from, from Guangxi. Uh, they talk about the use of, uh, lo, lo picante, right? Uh, spicy or, or hot food. They say that the, uh, cuisine from Sichuan has, has the fame of being hot. So you, you're never surprised if you eat Sichuan food and it turns out to be very hot. But they say the difference is that in Guangxi, if the food isn't hot, people ask why. If, if the food, right, si la comida no pica, if, if the food isn't um, spicy, really spicy, then the customer will become indignant. So you can imagine. Uh, also, you can imagine many of the people walking in there thinking this is just another Chinese restaurant when, when they have no idea what they are about to eat. In any case, yes, uh, Guangxi, um, they grew opium there. And so opium was popular, but illegal. And so Great Britain began to grow massive amounts of opium in Bengal and export them, uh, export opium, export uh, these boatloads of opium into China, where they would be smuggled into the area around Canton. Then the British would receive Silver, probably Spanish silver, right? Probably silver from uh, Guanajuato or I don't know, Potosí. And then uh, they would be able to use <laughs> that Chinese silver to buy Chinese tea. And uh, the Chinese complain. They send a letter to Queen Victoria saying, what are you trying to do to us? Are you trying to convert us into a nation of drug addicts or something? And first of all, this letter just 
assumed, right, to assume, dar por descontado. So it assumes that uh, opium was illegal in Great Britain, which it was not. Uh, it had many medicinal uses, and uh, the British never considered it uh, something illicit. They insisted that opium be treated like any other commodity. And secondly, the letter assumes that the British state is actively behind the opium smuggling, right? Um, contrabandeo, which is also completely untrue. Uh, you have to, you have to remember that the, the Chinese were, um, Again, extorting their, their neighbors at this point, right? Their neighbors were forced to pay tribute in silver every few years uh, from Xinjiang, the, uh, what, what is it called, the distant frontier, Xinjiang, and the, uh, the various khanates of, you know, what, what is now Uzbekistan, um, Turkmenistan, all of the stands. So, well, we really should begin to see how this how this actually worked in practice. And we have to go to uh, Calcutta uh, to be able to do that. Calcutta, which had been established on the Huli River because it had to be, right? Uh, Calcutta, often compared to New Orleans in Louisiana. New Orleans was the very, very worst place to establish a city. But strategically, a city had to be there. You had to have a city on the Mississippi River before it widens out into a delta. The, the, the lowest place, the lowest practical place next to the mouth of that river. And uh, yes, horrific and malarial and uh, just one of the worst places imaginable for a city. And on the Huli River, a tributary of the great Ganges, the British set up Calcutta, uh, in a notoriously bad place, uh, unhealthy. But again, it is the lowest habitable point on the Huli River before it enters uh, a una cienaga. And with a curve of the river offers anchorage, anclaje, just as you find in New Orleans. New Orleans, uh, on a curve in the Mississippi River, New Orleans, uh, the El Apodo, right? The nickname of New Orleans is the Crescent City. And when the um, East India Company was all about textiles, when its reason for existence was textiles, right? They, they came in thinking that they were going to steal the spice traffic from the Dutch. Uh, the, the Dutch had established themselves. The Dutch had pretty much destroyed the Portuguese in uh, the Indian Ocean and um, began to monopolize the trade in spices. And the British came in and discovered that textiles were much more profitable. And the very best textiles were coming out of Bengal. There was a, there was a huge demand in Europe. Europe had never, right, uh, Europe can't grow cotton. And when Europe, the, the whole rest of the world had cotton. But when Europe discovered cotton, they, they couldn't get enough of it. And, um, yeah, uh, textile makers who were very powerful began to complain about these imported textiles. And they were prohibited in different places, at least in theory. But uh, 
the the market. You can imagine if you've never worn cotton before, the the difference, especially in summer. In any case, the uh, the British established themselves there, and then um, on an earlier program, I was talking about what happened when the local Nawab of Bengal tried to get rid of them and put 130-something people into a very, very small cell all night uh, so that the following morning only a few had survived, and that was the black hole of Calcutta, something so notorious that it's still used today as a metaphor. So, yes, uh, the... The metro this morning, it was like the black hole of Calcutta. And yes, when I was speaking about Robert Clive and what he did after the Battle of Plassey, um, after Clive was finished, all of Bengal and Orissa and Bihar, we're talking about 20 million people, now belonged to the company. Not to the British Crown, but to the East India Company. And finally, you had access to the Ganges and... All of the lucrative markets up the Ganges, little by little. The Ganges and its tributary, the Yamuna. And you follow the Yamuna up, you have Agra, you have Delhi. Bengal was the richest of provinces, and you could afford an army of sepoys, right? Thipayos. And Calcutta was capital, of course, of Bengal, but also company headquarters. So that... um, Company officials, usually without supervision, uh, were able to take control all right, through coercion, through bribery, and um, enormous fortunes were made. It was, it, it was a place you would want to get rich and then get out after you had made your fortune. The whole uh, ethos there was, was predatory. Little by little, you know, there was more civilization. Uh, Bengal had a... Um, uh, an intellectual culture, and later on it became the uh, chief point of assimilation. There were schools there, later on universities there, where um, people from India, Bengalis, became familiar with English, the English customs and institutions. And, well, unlike, say, Bombay, where the British were there, but um, but it was the natives who were in charge, mostly Gujaratis or or Parsis or Muslims. Well, Calcutta was was very much European, and European merchants dominated the economy, and European ways of doing things uh, dominated the social life. And the company, little by little, began to switch from textiles to tea, and tea became its reason for being. Transshipment of tea bound for Britain, for sale in Britain, in exchange for opium, manufactured in the company's factories up and down the Ganges River. So that each January, when the monsoon bought the ships from China, it began to auction opium balls in sales rooms in Calcutta to private merchants who took the risks and made a lot of the profit now i'll be talking about i'll be talking about this more on my next program i i have run out of time thank you for listening and please listen to my next program
tengo 23 años y acabo de terminar la carrera de, de Administración y Dirección de Empresas. Decidí hacer este máster antes de, de acabar la carrera porque mi nivel de inglés era realmente bajo. Veía que tenía que buscar un trabajo y que necesitaba un buen nivel de inglés. Y creí que esta era la mejor forma y una alternativa a irte fuera. Así que decidí compaginar un poco los estudios con, con el inglés. Y ahora que he terminado, hace una semana que he terminado los estudios y tengo que buscar trabajo, me siento un poco más preparada. Lo mejor mmm, es el equipo de, de profesores que tienen. Hacen las clases muy amenas y aprovechamos el tiempo al máximo. No importa lo que hayas estudiado, no importa a qué te quieras dedicar. Hagas lo que hagas, vas a necesitar el inglés. Haz un máster que realmente merezca la pena. Haz el máster en inglés profesional de Baugan. Más información en el 917-700-700. 